if there is a place where it's just not effective to put in solar generation, it's certainly outside of the areas we deal in. So we're good in all parts of the U.S. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we are talking about solar farm development, how the cost, logistics, and even politics can affect one of the most promising and fastest growing power sources. It's true, with over 70 episodes, this is the first time I've ever done a straight up solar farm episode. At my job developing transmission projects, I've done a few interconnections whereby we tie in a solar farm to the grid. In most cases, it simply involved adding a small voltage transformer and some metering equipment. My guest says they develop both built to own and build to sell projects. Most of the time, the company they are selling the farms to is a public utility. That way, the utility owns the power they're selling, which it seems many utilities prefer. Other times, a third-party merchant power company operates the farms. I was fascinated with a few issues going into this interview. First, there are tons of solar farm developers just developing the big commercial farms. We're not even talking about the rooftop solar folks. So, with so many firms popping up, how do you distinguish yourself? How can you be competitive? Also, as you know, I talk a lot about storage, and it seems like solar developers are adding a lot more batteries into their projects. Does it really matter that the batteries are physically located at the farm? Isn't this power going out on the grid? Maybe a larger storage solution would benefit the system better. And I'm also curious about costs. I've posted some charts on the website that show how much solar costs have dropped. My guess emphasizes that installed cost is what's really important the land, the project management, the construction, in addition to the cells. Now, wages go up, and on a lot of my projects, the most expensive component are the guys. So how much lower can installed solar prices go, even if they gave away the cells for free? These questions, along with the abundance of solar opportunities around the world, is one of the reasons why my guest believes there's no stopping this gold rush of sunshine from stopping anytime soon. My guest this week is Brent Aldifer, founder and CEO of Community Energy, a renewable energy project developer based in the Philadelphia area. The company began about 20 years ago, focusing mainly on wind projects, but have focused lately on solar and now more storage installations. What struck me was how many projects they've developed way north of the Sun Belt. Minnesota, Massachusetts, upstate New York. Looks like you can make it work anywhere. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brent Aldifer. Brent Aldifer, founder and CEO of Community Energy. And Brent, your firm is responsible for those green jobs out there we always hear. And every year, the number of companies developing wind, solar, storage projects grows. What makes your firm competitive in a market like this? Well, that's the challenge to any developer is can we put guts down and reserve land and develop projects that are competitively advantaged because it's getting more competitive. There are more RFPs and more of these projects are going 
a bid. Prices are coming down, and that's a challenge as to what would make us competitive is try to find the best sites with the best interconnection and the best solar resource in a given region where there is a market for the power. We've done it for about 20 years. We started in wind and went to solar. So far, we managed to stay ahead of the competition at some level. We're actually glad to see there's a lot of competition in the field. Brent, I spoke to a developer about two years ago here in Charlotte that said that utilities were more interested in owning their projects after they were completed. Is that still the attitude in the market you're seeing, or are you seeing a lot more purchase agreements? What's the mix there? Yes, we are seeing an appetite. I would say a growing appetite on the part of utilities to own solar generation, and we welcome it. We think that for the industry to grow, you want to find the best most efficient capital for any segment, right? And why wouldn't utilities with the history and the power markets, generation, balance sheet, and good cost of capital be the logical owners of solar generation? There are other owner groups too that compete and want to put capital into solar. It's reliable and there's international capital and there's Wall Street capital as there should be. But we welcome utilities and are seeing an appetite for utilities to own solar on their balance sheet. My first episode, speaking of utilities, was Duke Energy's Renewable Control center, they were remote monitoring from a central control center, dozens, if not hundreds of facilities around the country, not just in their area. They said it was much more affordable to remote monitor operations than have a guy, for instance, staff a location in person. How are your projects monitored? Are you using this third-party monitoring? We both build to own projects and build to sell. And so many of our larger projects are sold off to the most efficient capital. We do not have a control and dispatch center for the projects we own around the country. But we are seeing, and we particularly saw it with wind, the growth of central dispatch and algorithms and controls to get more efficiency out of a given generator. And so you're starting to see that with solar as the fleets build. But solar is fairly simple to operate. I'm not sure at the moment that the efficiencies in central dispatch on solar will keep anyone out of the market. Certainly for utilities and others in the power segment that are feeding wholesale markets, they're going to use it and use dispatch. But pretty distributed resource, ultimately, I think you're going to see a whole group of diverse ownership with or without centralized controls. Getting into the technology, I met with a guy also here in Charlotte who was developing those gimbal mounts for solar cells. Are any of your farms using the ones that track the sun throughout the day? They'll actually turn the PV cell with the sun. Yes, it is. That is one of the biggest efficiency improvements that brought costs down over the last decade. We principally use single axis tracking. It might not be two dimensions. As Gimbal might suggest, you have dimensions north and south, east and west. <laughs> single axis tracking and find that those are very efficient solar, principally because it increases generation output later into the afternoon, right? As yeah. the sun begins to set in the west. And most utilities, that's when the load remains on hot summer days. Buildings heat up and they've got load well into the afternoon and early evening. So the further we can push that power, that shoulder from the solar output into the afternoon, the more efficient and the more economic the solar is. So yes, we use it on most of our solar farm development as single axis trackers. And those trackers have come a long way. Yeah. What direction do the solar cells usually point? Well, I think that the misunderstanding of that is probably part of the problem with distributed solar. You get rooftop solar, it might be pointing in any direction. Mm -hmm. But obviously, you want to face south, right, to the sun. Yeah. And with single axis tracking, you can start in the southeast when the sun comes up and move to the southwest when the sun goes down. And the sun is directly overhead, so it's pretty much a horizontal module going from east to west. We hear a lot about storage and renewables together. I've spoken to a ton of 
storage companies. Are you planning any large-scale storage projects in the future? I think on your website you said you did. Yes, storage is increasingly part of our bids on grid-scale solar. Finer details on that are it's more economic in high solar resource areas like the southwest as compared to gas peakers, which would be the competition to battery storage, right? So what you really want with solar and renewables is the most effective resource to fill in the off hours and the shoulders. I would say at the moment in the east, there's a lot of gas capacity, gas generation that can fill in those off hours and firm up the solar and wind resources, oftentimes at or maybe sometimes better than battery storage. But battery storage is gaining fast in price and scale. And particularly in the West, depending on the number of hours per year, where you need that peak resource, battery storage, and sometimes winning the bids. And that's our metric, where we can lower a bid with battery storage, we do it. Where the gas peakers are going to beat it, then we don't include it. But it's part of the future, and it's coming on fast. And Britt, we say batteries, but as I've spoken to a lot of people on storage issues, storage can be a lot of things. It can be flywheels, pump storage, water and air. Should we only define storage projects like this as battery, or is there room for other technologies? Because it would seem to me as a developer, you might even be agnostic on the technology. You just want to develop the facility, right? No, you characterize us correctly. We are <laughs> committed to getting clean energy, renewables online at scale in time to make a difference on climate change. It's definitely not limited to battery storage. And as I said, gas is sometimes competition, but certainly other forms of storage are as well. Pump storage has been around a long time, pumped hydro. And the basic trade-offs are efficiency of the return trip, capital cost for the storage medium, whatever it is, and then operating life and cost to operate. At the moment, you would have to say lithium-ion at scale. You know, these are trailer load size batteries are mostly winning the financing and cost competition. But the other technologies you mentioned are coming on quickly. And as a developer, we're not only agnostic, we're looking for price, reliability, and financing to add to renewables and convert the grid to clean energy as quickly as we can. Where do you think a storage solution should be located? And I've heard a lot of answers. Next to a solar farm at a substation. I'm also hearing a lot more noise about, let's just put them all behind the meter at homes and stuff. In a perfect world, where do you think these storage farms should go? As a transmission expert, I should ask you. So let me give you my simple answer, and then you can correct it. How about that? I take a very simple approach to grid scale storage. As long as there's a solar tax credit that changes the financing on storage, charging the battery with solar power has some economic advantages. That financing will skew the location, in our view, many times to put it on or near the solar farm, certainly behind the point of interconnection of a solar farm so we can charge it with solar power and broaden the tax credit. And then ultimately, it seems to me, it will be located at the substations or at the points on the grid where it's most useful, right? It'll be a distributed distribution level resource. And again, another example where utilities are probably the best party to do not only the some of the investment, some of the ownership, but the planning on their system to see where they can get the most economic benefit out of it, where they can defer a substation or a distribution upgrade investment. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's very interesting. You're also the second person I've talked to who's brought up this little carve out where storage, you get incentives if it's at a solar farm, which really seems a little bit short-sighted. I think maybe the people who wrote the laws didn't quite understand exactly what was going on there because it shouldn't make any difference 
where the battery farm is, whether it's right next to a solar farm, it's benefiting a solar farm or what other renewable resource you have out there. I would have to think, and I'd like to see what you think about this, that carve out, that little distinction probably is going to either get broader, where basically it doesn't matter if it's next to a solar farm. That has to be changing soon, right? I think long term, I agree with that. And I would say it this way, that economically, the location of the battery is certainly separate from the location of the renewable resource, right? Mm-hmm. In the near term, not only based on the tax credit, but based on renewable and environmental goals to look at how much solar power can be brought onto the grid as compared to fossil or carbon emitting power, then If you can charge your battery with solar power rather than charge it with grid power, you've expanded solar, right? You can put in more solar panels Mm -hmm. to charge that battery and get more solar power onto the grid at diverse hours. Whereas if you're charging it from fossil or other sources on the grid, you have a smaller solar farm and therefore less solar energy in the grid overall. So there is an environmental part of the carve out, I would say, that's valid. On the other hand, ultimately, economics are going to drive not only renewables, but the entire grid to less carbon in my view. So for instance, with a carbon tax, we would make it the most efficient location we could and the battery could be placed anywhere, right? That does make a lot of sense because it almost seems like it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive to put all these batteries next to a solar farm. We could just be putting more solar cells in whatever your lease is. I'm curious about your crews that install the farms. Do you have a standing staff or do you bring in third-party guys to do the work? Are your crews kind of like those guys who put McDonald's up around the country. Tell me a little bit about the guys putting the facilities in the ground. In construction, as in all parts of our business, we've always been a lean company. We're always looking to take generation to the next technology and have done that successfully from wind to solar to solar storage. But in terms of the construction, a good part of that, we farm out. We hire EPC contractors, but we do have a small staff. Sometimes we do it ourselves on smaller projects. And on our operating projects, we have a staff that runs that. But for the most part, to get the economics on large-scale solar, which is our mission, to get the scale, we hire EPC contractors. And I comment on that as they have done their part in bringing down the cost of installing these systems and the efficiency, trenching and wiring and free wiring harnesses and overall cost of construction to where we view that as their specialty and look to them for a lowest cost bid. So for the most part, we're looking at the cost from EPC contractors on a bid basis. Yeah. And speaking of cost, what kind of metrics do you use? Is there some sort of universal solar farm metric installed price per acre? What's the lingo? Now, that's a good question. There's a couple of ways you can get into that, but I would say the first one universally is dollars per watt installed. Mm-hmm. You can talk about it in DC watt or more useful, in our view, is dollars per watt of AC installed. Certainly that's different in different parts of the country where you have different solar resources, but the basic metric is a dollar watt in our scale. The first target was getting to a dollar a watt for an installed, complete solar project. Now, as you know, we're looking under that. So for a one megawatt project, million dollars. For a hundred megawatt project, hundred million dollars of capital. That's our basic metric. 
Do you think other things may be affecting dollar per labor is always going to go up? Also, I did an episode with the Solar Energy Industries Association about a year ago. We were talking about the panels from China and how they were being tariffed. It seems like the natural progression, you'd be going a dollar a watt and lower. But are any of those externalities making that more difficult? They all do. All those external <laughs> costs take it up or down, right? And certainly a flip up, not as high as the industry feared, has been offset by some further reductions. And the tariff is already working its way down in terms of the tiers. The tax credit starts to ramp down after this year. So that'll affect the pricing. And then where do the labor costs go? As you mentioned, labor material costs go over the next five years. Overall, so far, technology improvements, the trackers we talked about, and the efficiency of the EPC contractors, those are the contractors that do the construction and install. So far, industry efficiencies and technology efficiencies have not only kept up with but exceeded blips in increased costs and kept the trend coming down for dollar watt installed. And we think over the next 10 years, there will continue to be a net decline against all those factors. But we're certainly at the low end of that ramp, right? So we came down in costs, the solar industry, 70 plus percent since 2010. Obviously, we're not going to see that kind of percentage over the next nine, 10 years, but we still see it as net cost reductions over time with the blips here and there, maybe up for a year or two as the tax credit goes away and other international trade conditions take effect. But overall, 10-year trend, we see it continuing to climb. What do you think the floor will be on price per watt? That's aspirational. I've always had the 50% of watt. Yeah. Only number in mind as we're really starting really start to show the capability at scale of solar technology, which is an impressively simple technology at heart, right? The sun hits the silicon module and moves electrons. That's a pretty nice basic concept to try to reduce costs on over time. I'd say 50 cents a lot. It's taken us a little while to get there, so inflation and other factors may mean that's 50 cents in some dollar in some year in the future. It may be a little different than 50 cents a lot. It may be higher in future dollars. But, yeah. you know, we're under a dollar a watt. We're not finished. There's a personal target. I'm not betting investments on that price yet, just to be fair. <laughs> we're certainly under a dollar a watt. I did a concentrated solar power episode about a year or two ago, and the entire focus of that technology, no pun intended, was about the site and how much clear sun the region received. But you're putting installations in upstate New York and Minnesota, not exactly the Sun Belt. Is there ever a situation where it just doesn't make sense to install a solar farm? Seattle? Well, that's where the technology's come a long way. So maybe because I didn't live in the Southwest, I never really focused on that clear sky solar technology. No, not many people do. You're talking about person in those parts of the country where you have it. But I think Minnesota has effect, cost-effective solar. That's getting as far in New York, getting as far north as we need to. Canada as well has raised up the solar. So that's really the technology, not thin film included, where you have solar production on a cloudy day that you might not expect to get enough solar radiation. You do get output. That's where the efficiency on these cells has made a difference. If there is a place where it's just not effective to put in solar generation, it's certainly outside of the areas we deal in. So we're good in all parts of the U.S., for sure. (laughs) Maybe on the North Pole, it's not quite ideal. Who knows? I haven't checked that for now. That's probably good. 
let's get more activity up there. So maybe we need to check that out. <laughs> Brent, we're going to finish up. There's a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. First one is natural gas. That's as clean as it gets with fossil. It is the bridge to the future. Let's just make sure we have the land on the other side of the bridge to land on. Crude oil. Crude oil got us to where we are. It will not get us where we need to go. <laughs> Nuclear. Nuclear is a big part of carbon-free generation. Nuclear will eventually retire, but it's going to need to have a good 10 or even 20 years of production left, in my view, if we're going to get to climate change goals. Coal. Big trouble. <laughs> what about coal with carbon capture? Too expensive. Around the world, we may need to get to carbon capture more quickly than in the U.S. because there is a lot of new coal generation, unamortized capital in the ground in China and coming on in India. So with that kind of capital investment, it may be that we need carbon capture and sequestration. We better learn to clean it up in the rest of the world. Yeah, they may need it more than we do. Wind. Big part of what got us here on renewables and offshore is... Uh, the next big frontier for wind. Solar, you guys. Solar is the workhorse. It's got the unstoppable future. It's got the economics. It's got the efficiency. It's got the distributed ability to be rooftop to 1,000 megawatt. It's the workhorse of the energy generation segment of the future. Biofuels. Biofuels has a role. For me, it's a small role. It's a role in the best use of resources we have. Hydroelectric. A lot like nuclear. It's a big part of our carbon freeze, so we don't want to retire it too quickly. But ultimately, I think the streams come back and hydro ramps down. Geothermal. Geothermal is the best source of home heating. I know it's part of grid scale as well, and it should be. But when I think geothermal, it's the best home heat source you can tap. We talked about this a little bit. Energy storage. The next big frontier. It's a necessary piece of building out a solid-state grid, clean grid, and it's on our doorstep. Next big frontier. Electric vehicles. Coming on faster than anyone would guess. It's an exciting transition. When you have a vehicle with a third the number of parts, it's absolutely clean when powered with clean energy and beats the performance of a $300,000 sports car, that's something you can't ignore. Yeah, not many things to say no to. Energy efficiency. Always the first resource. And got to solve the mystery of why we don't do that first. And then finally, fusion power. Definitely the answer and still 25 years off. <laughs> well, you should talk to some of my guests. I think they might be able to beat that. That would be exciting. All right. Brent Aldefer, Community Energy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay. I enjoyed it. That was Brent Aldifer, founder and CEO of Community Energy, a Philadelphia-based renewable energy developer. The company has developed 700 megawatts of wind projects and now has 18 solar installations supplying 800 megawatts of power around the country. I want to thank Brent for his time, as well as Liz Crumpacker and Reagan Keller at Antenna Group for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release so far no complaints be sure to leave us a positive review on itunes that gets the word out music was produced by sean stroop at stroop loops that wraps up episode 68 be sure to join us next week when we discuss how a small startup is delivering commercial scale power to the developing world until then i'm jay dowenhauer we'll see you next time